If you would please turn in your Bibles to uh, Romans chapter 1. We need to be reading verses 16 and 17 and you will find that on the Bible that's in the pew in front of you on page 939. appreciate this opportunity to have this uh, service here this uh, evening and we have done this for a number of years and as you may know we're going to be having a... Um, a concert in a couple of weeks and I'm so glad that uh, Westminster decided to host this uh, this evening. When Wes called me he asked if I would speak tonight and obviously it's going to be a Reformation uh, service and so a Reformation theme and he asked me to do something on the history and background perhaps and and uh, so I thought I would do a, a scripture text that really is the, uh, the Reformation's Bible text and it is a message that I have preached uh, at the uh, one of these services before and so you may uh, recognize it as uh, such. In uh, 1920 an English preacher named Frank W. Borham published a book of sermons on the great texts of the Bible and in each case he linked a particular Bible verse or text of scripture with a Christian man or woman and he called his book Texts That Made History and an example of that is for example David Livingston's text the great missionary to Africa his text was Matthew 28 verse 20 which says and surely I am with you always even to the end of the age and that was such a great encouragement to David Livingston as he was out there so often alone and by himself and in very, very difficult circumstances and that he took this text as his text and uh, that's how it has come to be known since then. John Wesley's text was Zechariah chapter 3 verse 2. Is not this man a burning stick snatched from fire? And you may recall that the reason that's so significant for John Wesley is that when he was a child he was actually rescued from a burning house and he saw that as God's hand upon his life and that became his text. Boram published this book, there are 23 sermons in this uh, particular book and over the course of the next couple of years he published four more similar books in his lifetime. And of all of the texts that are associated with the lives of great Christians perhaps none is so clearly associated with one man as the one that is given to us in Romans chapter 1 verse 17. And that uh, man of course is Martin Luther. This is his text, or we could call it the uh, Reformation's Bible text. Now I'm going to read for you Romans 1, 16 and 17, but we're really going to focus on the last phrase of verse 17 uh, this evening. The Apostle Paul writes this, to the church at Rome and he says for I am not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek for in it that is in the gospel the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith as it is written the righteous shall live by faith let's pray and commit this time to the Lord this evening now, Father, thank you for uh, your word. Thank you for the 
Apostle Paul who penned these words to the church at Rome. And I know we thank you so much for Martin Luther who discovered the truth of this text uh, some 1500 years later and made it such a pivotal part of his own life so that we really are the heirs of that work in his life uh, so many years ago. As we go through our time this evening, we ask that you would honor your word, strengthen and encourage your people. And I pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So this evening I propose that we look at this verse, Romans 1.17, really from the standpoint of Martin Luther's life. I want to see uh, really how this text became alive in his life. And so a lot of it's really going to be historical background and how this pivotal text kept impressing itself on his life. And this text really then became the spark of the Protestant Reformation. Now you may recall, if you know anything about the life of Martin Luther, that he didn't set out to become a theologian. He, in fact, began to study law. And I know we have a lawyer several perhaps here this evening but that was also his father's desire for him his father wanted him to be a lawyer and he excelled in his studies and gave every promise of becoming successful in his profession but within himself in his soul Luther was troubled greatly and he was agitated at the thought that one day he would have to stand before God and give an account of his life in his boyhood days he had looked down at the frowning face in one of the uh, uh, windows at the, mar- at the church in Mansfield. And it was a kind of a frowning face of Jesus. And that's how he pictured Jesus, as angry and, and uh, uh, very severe in his attitude towards himself. And when some of his friends died, as two of them did when he was at college, Luther trembled even more. He knew that one day he would die, he didn't know when, And he knew that he would stand before God and God would judge him because he knew that he was a sinner. Then on August 17 in 1505, Luther suddenly left the university and entered a monastery and became an Augustinian monk. He was 21 years old and he said later that he went there not really so much to study theology, but he entered this uh, monastery to save his soul. In those days in the monastic orders there were ways in which the seeking soul was directed to find God and Luther with the determination and force that characterized his entire life gave himself rigorously to the Augustinian plan. He fasted, he prayed, he devoted himself to menial tasks and above all he adhered to the sacrament of penance confessing even the most trivial of sins for hours and hours on end until his superiors got so weary of his uh, confession that they ordered him to stop confessing until he had committed some sins worth confessing. Luther's piety gained him a reputation of being the most exemplary of monks. Later he wrote to the Duke of Saxony, and if you know anything about the life of Luther, you've heard this quote before. He said, I was indeed a pious monk and followed the rules of my order more strictly than I can express. If ever a monk could obtain heaven by his monkery, I should certainly have been entitled to it. Of of this, all the friars who have known me can testify. Uh, If it had 
continued much longer, I should have carried my mortification even to death by means of my watchings, prayers, readings, and other labors. Still, Luther found no peace in his soul through all of these exercises. The, the wisdom in Luther's day instructed him to satisfy God's demand for righteousness by doing good works. But what good works, thought Luther? What works can come from a heart like mine? How can I stand before the holiness of my judge with works that are polluted at their very source? In Luther's anguish, God sent him a wise spiritual father by the name of John Staupitz, the vicar general of the monastery where he was. And so Staupitz started working with Luther to try and uncover his concerns. Why are you so sad, Brother Martin? Staupitz asked Luther one day. I don't know what will become of me, replied Luther. Staupitz said to Luther, More than a thousand times have I sworn to our holy God to live piously, and I have never kept my vows. Now I swear no longer, for I know that I cannot keep my solemn promise. If God will not be merciful to me for the love of Christ and grant me a happy departure when I must quit this world, I shall never, with the aid of all my vows and all my good works, stand before him. I must perish. And so the thought of divine justice terrified Luther. And so he opened up and shared with the vicar general. And Staupitz knew where he himself had eventually found peace and he pointed it out to the young Luther and he said this to him Why do you torment yourself with all these speculations? Look at the wounds of Jesus Christ to the blood that he has shed for you it is there that the grace of God will appear to you instead of torturing yourself on account of your sins throw yourself into the Redeemer's arms Trust in Him, in the righteousness of His life, in the atonement of His death. Do not shrink back. God is not angry with you. It is you who are angry with God. Listen to the Son of God. But how could Luther do that? Where could he hear the Son of God? I mean, where could he hear God speak to him? And the Son of God speak to him as Stafford said that he would. In the Bible, said the vicar general. And so it was that Luther, who had first only seen his ever Bible just before he entered the university, uh, began to study scripture. And in his studies he eventually came to study the book of Romans. And as he got to the words of the text that we read this evening, particularly the, that last phrase, the truth of that text suddenly dawned on him, where it says, The righteous shall live by faith. And he came to understand that the righteousness that we need in order to stand before a holy God is not our own righteousness. Because as he said, our righteousness, our good deeds are polluted at the very core. But he came to understand that it is the righteousness of Jesus Christ 
that is credited to us. It's a divine righteousness that is given to us or credited to our account. And it becomes ours as a result of God's free grace. Our part is to receive it by faith and to live by faith in the promise of God. And so guided by this new light, Luther began to compare scripture with scripture. And as he did so, he found that the passages in the Bible that had formerly alarmed him actually now gave him comfort as he understood rightly that it's Christ's righteousness that gives us standing with God. It's the righteousness of Christ that covers us or that's credited to us that enables us to stand in the presence of God. In the chapter on Luther's text, Borum describes a famous painting that represents Luther at this stage in his pilgrimage. The setting is the early morning at the monastery in the library at Erfurt. And the artist shows Luther as a young monk, probably in his early 20s, poring over a copy of the open Bible from which a bit of broken chain is hanging. The dawn is stealing through the lattice, illuminating both the open page of the Bible and also the face of the eager reader. And on the page, the illumination falls most clearly on the words, The righteous shall live by faith. Some years later, in 1510, this is about five years after Luther had become a monk, and two years after he had begun to teach the Bible at the new University of Wittenberg, Luther was sent by his monastery to Rome. On the way, while being housed at the Benedictine monastery in Bologna, Luther fell desperately ill and relapsed back into the gloomy dejection of spiritual matters which were so natural to him. The historian Merle Daubigny, the great 19th century historian of the Reformation, wrote these words, To die thus, far from Germany, in a foreign land, what a sad fate! The distress of mind that he had felt, Luther had felt at Erfurt, returned with renewed force. The sense of his sinfulness troubled him. The prospect of God's judgment filled him once more with dread. But at the very moment that these terrors had reached their highest pitch, the words of St. Paul, the righteous shall live by faith, recurred forcibly to his memory and enlightened his soul like a ray from heaven. Luther was learning to live by faith, which is what this text is teaching. Comforted and eventually restored to health, he resumed his journey across the hot plains to Rome. Now Luther had been sent to Rome on church business, but in spite of this, when he approached the imperial city, he arrived there as a visiting pilgrim. And when he first caught sight of Rome as he came across the crest, uh, he raised his arms in ecstasy and exclaimed out loud, I greet thee, thou holy Rome, thrice holy from the blood of martyrs. And when he arrived, he, like all of the other pilgrims, made his round, visiting all of the relics and shrines and churches. He listened to all the superstitious tales that were told to him. At one chapel, when told of the benefits of saying uh, the Mass there, he thought that he could almost wish that his parents were dead so that he could have assured them against purgatory 
by his actions there. Yet Rome was not the center of light and piety that Luther had imagined. At this time, the Mass, at which the body and blood of Jesus were thought to be offered by the priest as a sacrifice for sins, was the center of Luther's devotion. And he often said Mass at Rome. And Luther performed the ceremony with solemnity and dignity that he thought should be ascribed to the celebration of the Mass. But not the Roman priests. They laughed at the simplicity of this German monk. They told him how that when they were standing at the altar repeating the words that were supposedly said to transform the the bread and the wine into the body and the blood of Jesus, they would say in Latin, no doubt, with a very solemn intonation, these words, Panus es et panus manibus. Venom es et venom manibus. What that means, I'm told, is bread you are and bread you shall remain, wine you are and wine you will remain. They were making an utter mockery of the sacrament. And Luther could hardly believe his ears at what he heard. And that really troubled him. There's another incident in his pilgrimage at Rome. He visited the famous stairs, the Scala Sancta they were called, the Holy Stairs. These were supposedly the stairs that were the stairs that Jesus walked up when he went to stand before Pilate. Supposedly there were blood stains in the stairs and pilgrims would pray on each stair and make their way up to the very top of these stairs. And apparently the belief was that years and years and years of purgatory would be remitted if you went through this pious exercise. And so Luther at this time still had this mixed thought. And so he did the same thing, got on the prayer, I mean on the stairs and started praying. And as he was going up, the words of this text came forcibly to his mind. The righteous shall live by faith. They seem to echo over and over again, growing louder with each repetition. The righteous shall live by faith. The righteous shall live by faith. But Luther at this point was not living by faith. He was living by fear. The old superstitious doctrines and the new theology that he had come to understand and embrace were wrestling within his mind. By fear, said Luther. By faith, said the Apostle Paul. By fear, said the scholastic fathers of medieval Catholicism. By faith, said the scriptures. By fear, said those who were on the steps alongside of him, agonizing with him. By faith, said God the Father. And then suddenly it hit Luther. It's not by these outward performances that we gain right standing before God. It is by faith alone, in Christ alone. It is by his righteousness that is credited to us that we gain right standing before God. And he stood up and he took this doctrine that the righteous shall live by faith as the foundation of all of his doctrine. That uh, became so pivotal, so foundational uh, to Luther 
that if you know anything about the, the life of Luther at all, you know that uh, he was committed to the doctrine of justification by faith alone. Well, at this point, Luther was still several years from what is known as the Diet of Worms or the Council of the City of Worms where he was told that he had to recant his writings and he had to stand before the emperor. This was in 1521 and Luther was asked two questions when he was finally brought before the council. He was asked to acknowledge it. By that time he'd written a lot of books, whether all of these books were his and he said that they were. And second, they wanted him to retract what he had written. And so he asked if he could take time to think about this because it was such an important issue uh, and he was granted time to uh, think about what his response would be. And so when he appeared the next day before the council, the demand was the same. Will you defend these books as a whole or are you ready to disavow them and retract them? So Luther then started making distinctions between his writings. He tried to draw the council into a debate and so have the opportunity to present the true gospel. Some of his books, he said, treated the Christian faith that was in language acceptable to all people and to repudiate these would be a denial of Jesus Christ. A second category attacked the errors and the tyranny of the papacy and to deny these, he said, would lend additional strength to this tyranny and thus be a sin against the people. And then a third class of books concerned individuals and their teachings. And here Luther confessed that he may have spoken harshly or unwisely, but if so, it was necessary for his adversaries to bear witness of the evil done. Luther said that he would be the first to throw his books into the fire if it could be proved that he erred in any of these or his writings. And so the moderator said, but you have not answered the question put to you. Will you or will you not retract? And upon this Luther replied in his famous statement, Since your most serene majesty and your high mightiness require from me a clear, simple and precise answer, I will give you one. And it is this, I cannot submit my faith either to the Pope or the councils because it is clear to me as the day that they have frequently erred and contradicted each other. Unless, therefore, I am convinced by the testimony of Scripture or by the clearest reasoning, unless I am persuaded by means of the passages I have quoted, and unless they thus render my conscience bound by the Word of God, I cannot and I will not retract, for it is unsafe for a Christian to speak against his conscience. And then looking at those who held his life in their hands, Luther said, here I stand, I can do no other, may God help me, amen. And so the German monk uttered those words that still thrill our hearts almost 500 years later. Amen. Later in his life, Luther was to write many things about the doctrine of justification by faith, which he learned from Romans chapter 1, verse 17. It's very simple and it's very clear. We are sinners. We have nothing that we can bring to God that will ever make us right before Him. Our righteousness, says Isaiah, is as filthy rags. But praise God, He has sent His Son 
and he will credit to us the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ, which we simply receive by faith alone. And it is by faith alone, in Christ alone, that anyone is ever saved. That's really the doctrine of justification by faith. Luther would call it the chief article from which all our other doctrines have flowed. He called the doctrine of the justification by faith the master and prince, the lord, the ruler and the judge of all other kinds of doctrines. He said if the article of justification is lost, all Christian doctrine is lost at the same time. He argued it alone begets, nourishes, builds, preserves, and defends the church of God. And without it, the church of God cannot exist for one hour. We live in an age, frankly, and you know this, where we have so many different understandings of what the gospel is. There's the prosperity gospel. There is the gospel that says that it's up to you to live in such a way that God will find you acceptable. We, when we talk to people about becoming communicant members in the church, we ask them, what will you say when you stand before God? I can't tell you how often we hear things like, well, I believe in Jesus and God should accept me because I believe in Him and I try to live a good Christian life. And that's works. That's works. It's not what I do that can save me. It's what Jesus has done that will save any of us. We thank God for what Luther discovered in the 1500s, in the early 1500s. I pray that every one of us will grab a hold of this doctrine and this truth and live it out day by day for God's glory and for the good of His church. Let's pray. Our Father, I do thank you so much uh, for Martin Luther. Thank you for what he discovered in his life and the testimony of his life over uh, 500 years ago. In just two years, we'll celebrate the 500th anniversary of when he posted the 95 Theses on the church door at Wittenberg and began what we now call the Protestant Reformation. We, we are heirs of what uh, Luther learned and what you showed him what he came to embrace and understand. How grateful we are to you for that. Oh God, help every one of us to understand that it is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, what he has done, that any of us can ever stand before you. I pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.